Hey everyone, Amy Poehler was the star of Parks and Rec, a show I love for its sweet nerdiness and Kellen loves because he too is always on the verge of being canceled. Today's book is her memoir, Yes Please. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and reading this book was a great opportunity to help me remember my failed Saturday Night Live audition. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. Parks and Rec, what is this? My driver's exam. In Yes, Please, Amy Poehler gives lessons for chasing a comedy career and a happy life. Two incompatible goals. Hey, this is the book pile. By the way, if you haven't heard that SNL story of my audition, yeah, you can find it on the episode we did on Tina Fey's Bossy Pants. I really like that you're, uh, you're building out the book pile expanded universe. Just trying to plug us on our own show. It's like how every Marvel movie is an ad for every other Marvel movie, <laughs> or how every DC movie is an ad for every Marvel movie. <laughs> Got a review from Mangan8 who says, so disappointed. And they're lucky that I kept reading. So disappointed. I just finished listening to all the podcasts from the beginning, and now I have to wait for Monday to listen to this amazing podcast. What am I supposed to do for the rest of the week? That's very nice. Yeah, so I don't know what you do with the rest of the week. Uh, Say hi to your kids and sleep a lot. (laughs) Also, preview of next two weeks. Our next two episodes will be The Fellowship of the Ring and Emma. So make sure and read those or at least watch the movies. (laughs) All right, without further ado, here are our four favorite lessons from Yes, Please. All right, lesson one. Choose your currency. So she talks about how she has spent so much time worrying about the way she looks, including this time she dated a male model and he was really mean to her, which I love hearing that a male model is a jerk because then I can be like, oh, good thing I'm not him. (laughs) His his great bone structure makes him unkind. (laughs) Anyway, at one point she decided, okay, I don't want my currency to be my looks. My currency is that I have a ton of personality. And so she gives the advice decide what your currency is. Like, uh, you know, maybe your currency is that you're kind or you're smart. Maybe your currency is dollars. Like, whatever the (laughs) thing is by which you want to be valued, specify that for yourself. When I first started doing stand-up the first few years, I was, like, pretty unhealthy emotionally as far as viewing other people's success, like being happy for peers, because I I tended to be too uh, jealous. I remember one guy... He got a bunch of stuff pretty quickly, and he was really frustrated that he just filmed a pilot, but then the pilot didn't get picked up, and he was depressed about it. And I remember thinking, well, good, at least he isn't happy. (laughs) And at that point, I was like... What a great memoir title. (laughs) Maybe I need to rewire how I feel about everything. I think this has more to do with me. (laughs) So I think this idea of focusing on your currency works for companies as well. So I know we talked about this before, but Greg McEwen talks about how Southwest decided, okay, we are going to be the low-cost airline. And so every choice they made was focused on being low-cost. And now they're so popular, like United dragged that guy off the plane and we were livid. Southwest had someone sucked out the window and we were all like, well, these things happen. (laughs) Yeah, it is crazy how Southwest is a low budget airline, but it still sticks out above the other other low budget airlines. You know, it's like how stuff really is 
pretty much the same price at both Target and Walmart, but Target just feels better, you know? <laughs> like I I went I flew Frontier one time, which is like the Walmart of airlines, and <laughs> it was flying from Denver to Los Angeles. So it's like this three hour flight and the seats are terrible. They're just like a thin metal mm-hmm. with a you know, like a vinyl coating or something. And a flight attendant walks from the back of the plane to the front and she gives out yellow slips of paper to eight of us on the plane including me and when she gets to the front of the plane she gets on the intercom and says if you just got a golden ticket that means that you won a $200 frontier voucher and no one cheered (laughs) (laughs) it was like all of us who got there were just collectively like, oh, we have to do this again. <laughs> That's amazing. And and Frontier doesn't commit to their currency because they pretend to be a low-cost airline, but then they try to upsell you on a million things as soon as you're there because it's like $50 for the ticket. And for an extra $100, you get to wear your pants. <laughs> <laughs> like... You feel bait and switched. Like when I'm on Frontier, I'm like, no, we had an arrangement. I was going to pay you almost nothing, and you were going to give me the most miserable flying experience of my life. (laughs) I do appreciate that Frontier truly mimics the Wild West experience by constantly trying to swindle me. (laughs) The name is accurate because trying to get comfortable in their seats is like trying to sleep in a canyon. (laughs) But with less neck support. (laughs) Lesson two, surround yourself with people who do what you love. So when Amy Poehler, when she turned 22, she moved to Chicago. She worked as a waitress. She said, I'd ride my bike to shows while listening to the Beastie Boys. You're talking about going to improv shows at Second City which is uh, maybe the most famous uh, improv school in the world. People like Steve Colbert, Steve Carell, Tina Fey, all these people came out of there. I can't wait to be a dad so I can go to Second City and be like, what was wrong with the first one? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, you're hired. (laughs) And then to pass it off as improv, I will hide the notepad where I scrupulously wrote that joke word for word. (laughs) So she starts taking improv classes at Second City, doing sketch, uh, also at Improv Olympic, which is now I.O., both in Chicago. And this is where she met and hung out with people like Matt Besser, Tina Fey, Matt Walsh. Uh, And then with Besser, she would relocate the Upright Citizens Brigade to New York City. So this was their improv troupe that they started. They would move it to New York City and and create this thing theater with classes. Ultimately, what happens is she just immerses herself with the people doing the things that she loves in Chicago, in New York City. Then from the UCB, she gets scouted out for Saturday Night Live, and she is, again, just surrounded and has this ability to grow with a cast of of talented people. Uh, So I think whatever you're doing, just don't do it alone, like whether you're working in the arts any other industry, design, law, engineering, the mob, like whatever you're doing, 
I found that for me, it, it, it keeps me trying and it keeps me humble. It's a good balance, like being surrounded with a group of people where, uh, that are in your industry, but each person sort of is, is going to be at a different level. It's just healthy to have someone in the group who's doing better uh, and someone who's not. You sort of need that constant balance between, well, if he can do it, I can do it, to give you the confidence, but also the, I'll never be that good to motivate you to get better. Sure. I love the thing she said. She said, my motto has always been do work that you are proud of with your talented friends. So this is a book I've mentioned on this podcast before. It's called Who's Your City? And one of the things it talks about is that when we entered the digital age, everyone thought that all of a sudden remote work would take off and it didn't matter where you lived anymore. And there would be way less clustering in different cities. And for most of the digital age, we've actually seen the opposite where, you know, entertainment becomes more clustered in LA, finance becomes more clustered in New York, research is more clustered in Boston, that kind of thing. One of the takeaways of the book was that over the course of the past couple decades, place has become even more important for you to do what you love. I'm curious to see what impact COVID and Zoom have on that trend, but I was, uh, I was just surprised by the takeaway from that book. The impact that, the, the that Zoom has had on it uh, is that it continued to prove the point <laughs> that remote stuff doesn't work. <laughs> Do you think the people who work at Zoom, when they really need to make progress on something, they come into the office? <laughs> <laughs> I actually, that? I have mm -hmm. one exception, but I think he's a very big exception, which is Einstein. Because mm. Einstein, when he wrote his first four like landmark papers, he was just dinking around by himself in a patent office. So I think <laughs> I think the difference there is that <laughs> between us and Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is it like if you want you if you want to be an actor, like move to a place where there's a lot of actors. You know, if you want to be a banker, move to a banking city. If you want to be Einstein, <laughs> there is one <laughs> path. <laughs> I wonder if the name Einstein has been used more over the years as a compliment or an insult. <laughs> oh, for sure an insult. You've never heard anyone who's like, oh yeah, have you met Dean? He's a real Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be so rewarding to be so creative that your name becomes both a common insult, an uncommon compliment, and a delicious bagel. <laughs> <laughs> One last thought on Amy moving to Chicago. I think in addition to being motivated by your friends and peers who are doing great work around you, uh, you can also be taught so much just by working with great people. I know I've brought this up before, but Jordan Peele talked about how big the improv scene was to him, and he said it's so important to see the best. That's how you know how good it can be. That's why Dave wanted to join me to do a podcast. <laughs> you don't want to add anything to that? Moving on to lesson three. <laughs> Be as nice to yourself as you are to your friends. So this one's short. She talks about how, you know, she can be really self-critical. And so one of her tactics is she'll just say to herself, hey, cool it. Amy is my friend. Don't talk about her like that. She says, sticking up for ourselves is, she says, sticking up for ourselves in the same way we would have, let me try this again. Stupid, David, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> She says, sticking up for ourselves in the same way we would one of our friends is a hard but satisfying thing to do. I would, though, add an exception for some bros I know who are overconfident and need to rein it in. Talk to yourself the way you talk to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> 
I also want to point out that this tactic uh, is something you can do with your loved ones when they're being self-critical. There's that great scene in Booksmart when Beanie Feldstein insults herself. So Caitlin Deaver just full on slaps her. And she says, how dare you say that about my best friend? If you ever say anything like that about yourself again, I will lay you out. (laughs) It it is a funny moment in the movie, but genuinely, since watching it, like if my mom's giving herself a hard time, I'll just be like, hey, be nice to my mom. And she's like looking around the room like, are you okay? She doesn't understand. (laughs) I say walking in outside naked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Conan Conan O'Brien will talk as if there's another Conan. He's been pretty open about how hard on himself he is. And like after shows, if he thinks that he could have made something funnier or he thinks of a, a wittier remark that he could have said, like at two in the morning, he'll go into the bathroom and like berate himself. Wow. And number one, I don't know what that feels like. Because uh, I always know what to say, um, like just so now. you just you just berate me. <laughs> no, actually, if anything, it's like on the one hand I admire his honesty, but on the other hand, I'm like, if Conan thinks that he sucks, like how good am I at comedy? <laughs> if Conan thinks that he sucks, what does he think of you? <laughs> <laughs> It does make me sad that Conan berates himself, but at the same time, I'm like, I kind of want to hear that banter. <laughs> like it's a real Gollum Smeagol. Yeah, funny Gollum Smeagol moment. <laughs> Way to connect it to next episode. Just to continue to illustrate my point, when you have a literal icon of comedy for a guy like that to then think he's not funny, like it doesn't boost my own confidence in the same way. That like, remember when Christina Aguilera had that song where she's like, I am beautiful no matter what you say. I'm like, who's <laughs> saying anything to you? Like why? I'll admit When I hear these stories, there's half of me that's like, man, even people at the top have self-doubt. And then there's half of me that's like, maybe endless self-criticism is how you get there. (laughs) (laughs) So first, you have to believe in yourself. And then secondly, always question the belief you have in yourself. (laughs) Another example of that kind of role switching where you imagine that it's somebody else. This one comes from Annie Duke. She talks about how, you know, we're often overconfident about our own ideas. So when you come up with an idea, imagine, what would I think if this came from someone I hate? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson four, don't hand people scripts. Don't look for a shortcut. So you can apply this to yourself metaphorically or literally if you have done this. I've been handed and emailed several scripts during my comedy career. And guess how many I've read, Dave? Zero. Exactly. I just forward all of them straight to Steven Spielberg. Like, I don't... (laughs) I don't know what gateway people think that I have. First of all, if you think I could get a movie made, I would get my own movie made. (laughs) It's so crazy to me that people think, like, you must be this, like, trap door into show business. (laughs) It's kind of like when you're single and your friends ask if there's someone amazing you can set them up with. (laughs) 
So Amy Poehler tells a story of how a guy woke her up on a train by dropping a script on her lap, which is just insane because it's not only is that basically assault, but it's just (laughs) – I watched Aaron Sorkin's Masterclass on Writing, which – is, by the way, a real master class on writing. (laughs) And at no point does he ever say, like, you just need to write a screenplay, then have a hard copy of it with you at all times on the off chance that you see a famous person. Like, I I don't understand. It's so odd to me that you could have the work ethic to write 120 pages of a story that's like arcing with characters and subplot, but that you wouldn't put in any time to learn how scripts get read. Like you, you think that you should put like a thousand hours into the writing, but your end game was just a hail Mary. (laughs) Have you ever had anyone hand you a script? Like you did uh, a lot of writing, like in studio C, did you ever have anyone like give you a script or at least like throw sketch ideas your way? When I first started writing sketch, probably a couple times a month, people would reach out to me with sketch ideas. Uh, If any of them are listening right now, yours were hilarious, but mostly it's (laughs) like, okay, well. (laughs) I know a guy who works for a company who who, like develops a lot of apps. And my first thought, which I didn't say to him, was an idea for an app that I had. Uh, But my (laughs) second thought, the thing I actually said to him was, how often do people give you ideas for apps? And he just all of a sudden had the most exhausted expression I've ever seen (laughs) on anyone's face. And he goes, every day. (laughs) (laughs) Again, this is why, to me, it comes back to shortcuts. If you want to make something, like, it's fun to come up with ideas, but 99% of it is that grunt work that you got to just do yourself. One thing I like to assume when I meet any creative in any creative field, especially one where they have more experience than I do, I just like to assume, I bet I have more ideas than they do. (laughs) So the takeaway for me is, like, again, if this is your dream, whether it's, you know, a script or a book or... Read about people who have gotten a movie made. Surround yourself with people who are in various stages of writing or getting a movie made or, you know, go to film school. Whatever you do, don't try and make me feel bad when I unenthusiastically take your ream of paper after a comedy show. (laughs) So her, her reaction is obviously like indignant. And then she brings up all these times when people have given her scripts and how it's as far as like respect for the art goes, the, the audacity that people have to think that like, not only that they could do what she does, but they're like, so I think this would be really cool. Like you could be producer, co-writer, director on this with me, <laughs> like, <laughs> like just automatically this accountant with a sci-fi comedy idea just uh-huh. thinks that they're peers immediately. I'll cut you in on this. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And she says uh, the, the funniest part is like, she sort of ends that segment by saying, and ultimately when you hand me a script, it just reminds me that I need to be writing more scripts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Random facts. So here are just a collection of some of my favorite lines from the book. Telling me to relax or smile when I'm angry is like bringing a birthday cake into an ape sanctuary. You're just asking to get your nose and genitals bitten off. (laughs) 
Next one. Please don't drive drunk, okay? But by all means, walk drunk. That looks hilarious. <laughs> I'm not sure if you have heard about this new theory that men and women are different, but it's really starting to catch on. <laughs> If you start crying in an argument and someone asks why, you can always say, I'm just crying because of how wrong you are. (laughs) (laughs) Because this book is so funny. Uh, At one point, I thought that this was going to be a joke, but there was no punchline. At one point, when she's talking about um, the year that she got divorced, she goes... One of the things that helped me in 2013 was that I spent the first day of that year touring orphanages in Haiti as an ambassador of arts for worldwide orphans. And I was just like, you're just like, I don't grinning to myself, like, waiting. (laughs) But then she just keeps talking. I'm like, okay, she um, did that. All I know is anytime a book starts telling me about orphans, there better be a punchline or a power. (laughs) So wait, were they wizards? (laughs) So I want to say this book was written, it came out in like 2014, 2015. She mentions Louis C.K. quite a few times in it, including a quote where he tells her that, quote, guilt is like an intersection where you have to decide to make a turn and keep moving. Which is funny because (laughs) he stayed parked at a certain intersection for years until seven women called him out. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the man could use maybe a little bit more guilt in his life. (laughs) We as a society love talking about self-forgiveness, but I love when it goes so far that someone commits crimes. (laughs) Ted Bundy really did know how to forgive himself. So I really liked this story. She said, I recently hurt myself on a treadmill and it wasn't even on. I was adjusting my speed and stepped wrong and twisted my ankle. I felt frustration filled with immediate relief. I didn't have to actually work out, but I still got credit for trying. It was a gym snow day. (laughs) So Chris Pratt was only supposed to be on the first six episodes of Parks and Rec, but he he did so well and he was so liked that they ended up he ended up becoming a full-time cast member. Uh when my wife and I started watching Parks and Rec, it was before he'd been in anything else and my wife just thought he was a slob, like she couldn't stand him. But it's interesting to see that like he does have you see him in that and he's sort of a like a lazy little boy who's trying to be a big boy in guardians of the galaxy he's a plays a superhero very you know a witty superhero convincingly um in jurassic world he's a boring guy (laughs) he's a boring zookeeper so it's just neat to see like the range of his talent i feel like his story is kind of like aaron paul in breaking bad who was supposed to die in the first season but then they liked him so much that they kept him on but then Brian Cranston would always prank him because Brian would read the scripts first. So every time he got a new script, he'd be like, hey, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so then Aaron Paul would read them in a panic only to find he hadn't died that day. So I love that in the beginning of the book, she talks about how how difficult writing is, how boring it is. And again, we've talked about this so many times that there's that romantic view of writing and then there's the actual work and uh, but i also like the style in the book becomes very efficient it's a fun like not to compare her to to hemingway but she'll decide to use an entire chapter to tell us one story about apologizing <laughs> 
But then she'll use another chapter and fill it with literally like 50 tiny stories, like these sort of one-two punches that have so much depth to them. It's sort of like in the on writing episode when we talk about how when you describe a room, you don't have to describe the 90 things in the room. You just describe the two things that sort of contribute to that atmosphere the most. One long story versus 50 short stories sounds like me when I first get the journal versus me when I've forgotten to journal for a year. <laughs> and so here, here are a few examples of, of these moments that I love in the book. And again, these are like these little one-two punches of stories. So she says, my parents still live in the house I grew up in, um, which to me is a story that tells you that even when she got rich, she didn't buy them a nice house. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you are Sherlocking her daughterly negligence. (laughs) She says, In my room still hang dried flowers from prom and a stolen street sign from when I hung out with some bad kids over a summer. There's just there's just so much in that, right? Apparently in Washington they had to change the mile marker to four nineteen point nine because people kept stealing the four twenty <laughs> mile marker. And then some little excerpts from her time on SNL. She says, John Goodman was nice to me when no one else knew my name. Uh, they pulled Britney Spears out of a cold open because she didn't have time to change, and Amy Poehler replaced her with five minutes prep time. Wow. She says, it was a skiing scene, and I may have worn her clothes. <laughs> she says, uh, when Sir Ian McKellen hosted, he greeted them every day that week with, good morning, actors. And that's just funny to me because <laughs> I can so see... Sweet. I, I, I don't know if it's sweet or if it's, like, condescending, if he's, like, saying actors with, like, finger quotes. <laughs> Even if Ian McKellen condescended to insult me, I would feel so flattered. <laughs> I'm flattered that his last name is a fast food version of my first name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she says, uh, Colin Farrell was super hungover and super nice. Uh, Matthew McConaughey wore a sarong in Lauren Michaels' office. And Antonio Banderas smelled the best of any host. Wow. <laughs> Which I think we were all assuming that anyway. <laughs> all right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Yes, Please. One, choose your currency. Two, surround yourself with people who do what you love. Three, Be as nice to yourself as you are to your friends. Four, don't hand people scripts, a.k.a. don't look for a shortcut. And five, if you do want a shortcut to publishing a best-selling book, become very, very famous. 